Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Welcome to part two of the previous episode. You sure did work your their year in those last three months, didn't you? That, that's what produced that one paper? Yeah, it, I produced two papers, and one of which, the paper that went viral, it was an assignment in a statistics class. Um, and I turned that into a paper, and I was just happy that it got accepted. I got an email from Playboy magazine, which I have to this day, asking me about this paper. I'm like, wait a minute, this, wait, this has what? to be... It has to be spam, right? It has to be spam. But then after Playboy, iHeartRadio uh, hit me up and, and then Fox hit me up and, and they're asking me, so so Aditi, like, what do you think about the landscape of online dating? I'm like, bruh, I was very close to getting chopped from this program. This was my Hail Mary. I don't know anything about online dating, but did I tell them that during that time? Absolutely not. I pretended to know everything. So I sold that paper. And that one paper triggered my job placement, media mentions, everything. So, so thankful. When I tell you that it was divine providence, it was truly the good Lord working very hard for me to not only get this paper published, but make it go viral as well. Wow. What's the topic? How do we, is it out there? Can we go look up this paper? And Yes. You know? Honestly, it's a two-page paper. Can you believe it's like a two or three-page paper? When I tell you I try to do the least to get the most mileage, it truly is the fact. That was the green tea <laughs> to my diet plan. It's called, is online better than offline? Depends if you want to marry or to date. It was a comparison between should you look for dating partners online or are you better off looking for them in offline venues? In a quick snapshot, what was your research? Are you say, Were you... Touting uh, online at the time while you were getting all these no. hits. I, I went against the grain and I said online sucks. <laughs> online is great if you if you want to keep meeting people, but it's not going to result in a marriage. And even when it does, it in, it has a higher chance of divorce. And that was against the grain uh, of what people were touting online dating to be back in the day, where oh, one in five Americans are meeting their partners online. Well. When I looked at my friends and even my state of life at that time, I'm like, wait a minute, like this is not that optimistic, right? That's the motivation for me to like crunch the numbers of this already available data set to provide these insights about online dating in reality and what it looks like in the future. Intriguing story. And so my listeners and I are wondering, so what next? You're on your tenure track professorship in uh, at the New York University. How did life get to this point for you? And tell us some of your amazing achievements. Oh man, can I tell you something? It's 
when I started growing my LinkedIn profile or my my personal brand is what they call it now on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. I truly thought what would resonate with people is how awesome I was. Then I realized something completely different. <laughs> I realized my biggest failures have been things that have resonated with the most number of people. I'll give you an example. I wrote a book on hookup culture and online dating, and I talked about that that book and, and announced the launch of that book. 500 people liked it, right? When I talked about how I was voted off my PhD program, 2,000 people liked it. Wow. When I talked about how I got my green card after so much struggle, 6,000 people liked it when I talked about how as a professor, I still felt so fraudulent because I was carrying so much baggage of imposter syndrome from my PhD program that I didn't publish a single paper in my first three years as a professor, 11,000 people liked it. So instead of talking about my awesome achievements, I would really like to talk about my failures. <laughs> because sure, sure. you later that's what resonates with people right because we think that our achievements are going to impress people i'm like oh my god i can't wait to follow her because she's so cool or he's so cool we are all trying to get this message that well oh man like they have also started where i'm starting and if they can do it i can do it too and that's the message that i would really would like to hear more for myself And I would also like to resonate it out to your listeners that if you are listening to Simone's podcast, chances are you you are an immigrant, a new one or an old one, or your parents are immigrants, whatever it is, you something is resonating in this podcast for you. And what I do want to shine the light on is U.S. immigration is hard, period. And when we are going through these struggles, we truly think that our struggle is the biggest struggle. And I felt like that. To be honest with you, between you and me, I'm still convinced that the struggle of an Indian high-skilled immigrant is the biggest struggle. Completely oblivious to the fact to people who are seeking asylum, who are fleeing from war-torn countries, because in my story, I am the protagonist. But Mm -hmm. I do want to acknowledge the fact that It is really toxic to compare struggles with struggles and trauma with trauma. And I'm encouraging myself not to do it. And I would encourage you not to do it. Because while we may all be immigrants, our journeys are like our thumbprints. They are very, very unique and equally valuable. So even if you don't hear your story in my story, the underlying theme is, We have all struggled and we have made it to the other side, whether the other side is getting a green card and staying in the U.S. or whether the other side is learning your lessons in the U.S. to flourish in another country. It's all good. It all works out in the end. That's something that I would like you to take away from my story instead of giving you a laundry list of these are all the things that I've done. (laughs) Because I... Part of your story, what I got from our last conversation is that you had to, you had to do so many things to get to that green card. So oh, I, yeah. I want people to get the reality 
Oh, oh yeah. How did you get to that green card? Happy to talk about that. Yes. So again, like I said, as an Indian immigrant, uh, to get your green card, EB2, EB3, the second preference, the third preference is no longer an option. It's not an option. The only way that you can get your green card is through the first preference if you want to get it at the end of the day. And there are multiple reasons why you would like to entertain the idea that I should get a green card instead of thinking, ah, well, I'm just going to keep renewing my temporary visa for godforsaken number of years. It's because if you have a child who you have bought to this country and who was born in India, if you don't have your green card by the child turns 21, that child is illegal. That child has to go back. So there are more than one reason to try to get a green card. And for me, I didn't have a child, but it was the progressive realization for me that I had lost all of the personal freedom, the number one reason or the number two reason for which I moved to this country. Those late night parties or like, you know, packing my bags and, and going for a road trip with my friends, that kind of personal freedom, because I'd satisfied that itch already. Now my personal freedom became, oh, I cannot visit my family. I have to check visa dates to go back home. What is that? Right. So that became my primary motivation of working toward your EB1 first preference. Now, like I said, one of the clauses of EB1, and I'm again not exaggerating, is getting an Oscar. If you don't have an Oscar, then there are 10 ways in which you can demonstrate that you are extraordinary enough and that you are doing work that is in direct interest to the nation of the US, that if they lose you, then they're losing intellectual property and you have to make that case. There are different ways of doing that. I chose to do it through the category of what is called outstanding professor slash researcher. The only kicker is if you have to apply for your green card through this category, you need the buy-in for from your employer, like your employer has to petition for you. That persuasion of my employer, who then had to persuade the lawyer, went for three years. I started that conversation in 2018 to finally get their buy-in and for the for my employer to pay the lawyer to start my case went on till 2020 november i spent 2021 in a state which i would not wish upon anyone it is not a state of being denied it is a state of not knowing have you ever been ghosted when you have initiated a conversation with somebody on a dating app and you just don't hear from them you don't get closure that's where I found myself for the better part of 2021, where my lawyer just stopped talking to me. Maybe because I asked more questions, maybe it was if my profile was not strong enough, she just stopped communicating with me. So I spent 2021 with just working on my profile and working on my profile meant um, publishing a book, getting reviews for that book, getting speaking gigs for that book, promoting that book on social media, getting getting on podcasts, uh, reaching out to journalists uh, with my with the pitch of my book, failing, redoing that pitch to match the journalist's beat and putting my name in things like the Washington Post, getting quoted in BuzzFeed, Business Insider. I did all of that to finally get my green card in May of 2022. And that process was such a humbling realization about why we have such a thing called 
American excellence. Because for immigrants, excellence is not something that we aspire for. Excellence is a survival strategy. Because the immigration system was telling me that if I was not excellent at something, if I didn't excel and go above and beyond, then I was not good enough for this country. So excellence in that way became my trauma response. <laughs> so that's my story of getting a green card. What was the ghosting for? Was it your papers was in process, but they didn't have any information to share? Like, Oh, man. Oh, you know what? I, I take full ownership about this. I did my fair bit of like getting the cold shoulder from my attorney because I just kept asking questions. And that's an integral part of immigration because there are so many uncertainties of the immigration process. Like it's the if then else flow chart, right? If this, then what, then, and after you think that initial question was answered, now the new response has given you more things to think about. It's an unending loop. And I understand that I overextended my attorney's patience by asking her questions, but there was nobody else for me to ask any of those questions, Simone. So she was uh, pissed off with me because she I still have that email where she's like, this is the last email you're going to get from me, Dr. Paul. And this is back in 2018. I'm not even talking about the ghosting in 2021. What I'm trying to say is I had done enough to do damage to my relationship with the lawyer because she knew that once I started asking questions, I'd never stop. That was one part I can think of. The other part was the initial profile that I had submitted to her was objectively very weak compared to what was needed for EB1, the first preference. But I had consistently worked since then to strengthen my profile. And I still to this day do not know why she just stopped talking to me or responding to my emails so much so that I had to go to my HR, who then had to reach out to the VP of HR, who then had to reach out to the lawyer to finally tell me that the lawyer has still not submitted my petition because Dr. Paul did not have international acclaim. It took me seven months of persuasion of reaching out to four different people in the university to finally get a word of rejection from the lawyer. Okay, so then after that, uh, you submitted a new profile, then it was filed, and then you finally got an approval in 2022. Yeah. And and there was a huge deportation scare in March of 2022, too, where my lawyer had to write a letter to Kirsten Gillibrand uh, requesting her office to let me stay. Other than that, Pace University would incur a huge financial loss if I lost my status in April in the middle of the semester and not be able to teach. So that little drama happened in March as well. I'm saying that with a lot of levity right now, but I was a distraught mess last year this time there were multiple multiple nights and months where i had cried myself to bed just wondering if i was asking god every single day that listen if you don't want me to stay in the us just tell me i will leave like what what is this struggle that you're putting me through because it was that debilitating i had taken it very 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 hardly on, on myself and is this around a period during the pandemic, during the previous administration, where a lot of pe international students were, uh, something happened, right? Where it's like they had to all return home. Yeah. Is this during the same time? 
Yeah, this was, uh, well, but most of my profile building happened in 2021. But yeah, I was uh, uh, in, in 2020, a lot of my international students and the way I still remember, man, the way in, universities handled international students so ruthlessly at that time, without having any backup plan. It was it was outrageous. It was outrageous. My own student, she was like, Oh, well, I'm locked out of the my my dorm room, and I have nowhere to go. These are the students who are paying you three times the tuition of a oh. national student. So they no notice and they just locked her out of her room? It's, they, they gave her like minimum notice with like nowhere else to take her, right? Like, where would you go? And the, the lack of sensitivity. Uh, and I'm, I don't want to like co-opt her story, but those are the kind of stories that you were hearing at that time. And, and, and there are multiple stories about that in the media, how students could not go home because travel was restricted. And now the dorms are locked out. And now even if they could go home, they cannot come back. And when they are home, they're paying $5,000 for a Zoom class. Make it make sense. So this is the reality that I'm trying to bring across to people who are outside of the United States who are considering this path. I mean, I want people to consider the cost. And even when you come legally, like I did with my family, I I wrote a um, a piece on LinkedIn a few months back where I was thinking, as a brown black female, mm-hmm. the type of weathering, high context coping that you have to constantly deal with uh, of your identity and who you are, it's constantly being eaten away at uh, people. You know, I just was never raised in an environment like this. And it takes a lot out of you just to survive rather than just thriving and, and succeeding would we have made that decision? Would I have made that decision? I, I thought night and day for a very long time if I wanted to have a child, because I'm like, I don't want to have a child being raised in a culture like this. It was It's tough on people. Mm-hmm. And so I want people to consider the cost because it's not easy. I think a lot of people watch Hollywood, watch the movies, and they think that it's this is a bed of rose. Yeah. And, you know, there, yes, there's a lot of opportunities, much more than a lot of environments. Yes, I get it. But it's still very challenging when you come here in order to make it. It's not, you know, just be aware when you come, strap up your boots. You need to work. You need to put the time in. You're going to have to sacrifice. And when you come, don't don't just party, 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 because it will cost you. <laughs> That's truly the the message that I'm that that through your work that you're doing and through my work, I and mean, we're all doing it through our work, right? Like, would I leave the US voluntarily? No, I really like my life here. I like the life that I've built. I love my independence. I love the myriad of opportunities that are available. And to be honest with you, US is also a safe ground where you can critique and there will be people to appreciate that critique, right? They taking criticism and then making space for that instead of like being versus being punished for it. That's the kind of freedom that I truly enjoy. But like you rightfully said, you have to work really, really, really hard and sometimes harder than other people um, to, to get to that level to prepare for it and to not let this immigration system turn you bitter, but use it as an opportunity to become better. So I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, 
It says success leaves clues. And what do you know now that you wish you knew at the start of your journey? After years of going through all of this, you now have your green card. Is there something that you wish you knew at the start that you probably would have made different turns or you would have, you know, at the fork in the road, you would have made different decisions? Mm -hmm. Here's what I would say. Knowing what I know now, if I had known it then, I would have been much more intentional in what I did. Just as an example, right? Like when I knew that I had that ultimatum for my continuation in the PhD program, all of a sudden, because I knew I had that ultimatum, my brain started working differently. If that did not happen, I would have gone to that statistics class and seen that assignment as an assignment. But when I knew that I had an ultimatum, my brain went into creativity mode and said, well, this assignment has more mileage in it, turn it into a paper. So that was my intention working in my benefit. So if I knew what I know now, I would have been much more intentional uh, in my initial years. And that intention could mean building my brand. That could in, that intention could mean putting myself out there, networking with individuals. That intention would mean working extra hard to pump out publications, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the list goes on. So being intentional is what I would do differently had I known what I know now. But you were so young at the time, right? Do you think, is it youth and you think it just comes with maturity, What it, you know? I, you know, more than youth, uh, this is something that I, uh, I'm going to eventually make a LinkedIn video for. I was thinking in terms of this theory that I had read when I was doing my research. I'm going to nerd out a little bit, fair warning, about dumb decisions we make when we are drunk. And this is... There's this theory called alcohol myopia theory. It translates into myopia short-sightedness. Because of the stimuli that we have in our system, alcohol, we don't think what the long-term consequences are. So we are more likely to engage in unsafe sexual behaviors when we are drunk because, again, alcohol creates short-sightedness. In the same way, when we are young, we are so drunk on this perceived freedom that we'll get when moving to another country, we don't have the farsightedness to think, okay, but what are these decisions going to result in 10 years from now, 20 years from now? At that time, I'm like, yo, I just want to go out and party. I just want to go out and claim my own space. I just want to go out and like finally study the one thing that I wanted to study. Well, that's great, past Aditi, but how does that translate into future goals. And sometimes we are not, like you said, mature enough, or we are not willing enough, or we don't have the farsightedness to, to think about those implications of our decisions. Do you think that maybe it's coming from the type of culture that you were raised in, you just wanted the freedom? And that's why finally you're like, oh my gosh, I get to just go out and just enjoy my youth, um, which there's nothing wrong with that. Do, do mm. you think that that's probably a part of it? Just that freedom that a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, I've never lived in a country like this where, you know, <laughs> it's different from a lot of places. Yeah. I, yeah. I wish I was that person who was like, yeah, I want to live life free and that's where I want to go. My claim for that smidgen of personal freedom that I experienced when I moved to the U.S., 
was hinging on the fact that I could pay for my own education. My dad was not going to pay a cent for my education, especially because I was moving away from computer science, which is a sure shot way to financial security to something called communication. I don't think they still understand what communication is. They say it's mass communication because that's what they understand. I'm like, what is communication? Like you say, hello, that's what it is. So <laughs> they, they don't know what communication is. Trust me, even I don't know sometimes. So it's very hard to legitimize this move. So my dad is like, listen, do what you got to do, but you're paying for it. When I got a scholarship, I'm like, that's it. I'm set. This is great. Like, that's all I need to do for personal freedom. Not ever questioning, well, once I get my PhD, what does the employment uh, look like? Uh, or is it one of those cases where I'm like, we're going to cross the bridge when we get there. <laughs> it was it was the latter at that time. So I wonder over your experience then, you know, is there any faux pas, like something you did socially that was just not acceptable in the American culture? Or did your sister just have you keyed in on everything where you just didn't have any hangups? What would you recommend? One thing you would recommend to students who are here, like, don't do this because it's just going to, you know, stay for a long time. You know, what can I tell to kids that they already not know now because of social media? I did a survey for my book. So I surveyed international students and I asked them, where do you get to know about American culture? And the predominant source for them to learn about what American culture, what American college culture is through social media. So they are super smart. There is nothing that a millennial can teach a Gen Z that they don't already know, at least in terms of culture. So they are more in tune with the cultural experience of America. There is no culture shock that they go through. There is an academic culture shock though. The academic culture shock is because we are from a community where our meaning of where we stand in society comes from our comparison to others. And also the fact that we are a collectivist society because there's a lot of sharing of information, a lot of comparison as well. It is very common practice in India for you to ask what grade your friend got. Uh, to just gauge, like, should I still be friends with you or you're my friend of me now? I'm kidding. Uh, but it's, it's very commonplace to ask your friends, like, you know, what did they get? And like, you know, what studying are they doing? I did not find that in my PhD. Now, I don't know if that's a PhD thing or an American thing. That's one thing that I would share from my experience to talk about grades or something as sensitive as grades with a little bit of conservativeness. Here, right? Yeah. And again, I, I say it with a grain of salt because I don't know if that's a PhD thing or if that's a, just an American thing. Right. It's probably Amer- an American thing. I, the whole discussion of salary thing probably yeah. has the same level of sensitivity along other topics as well. So um, I get that. Yeah. So to wrap up, Aditi, how, how do people find you? I mean, your publications, your books, um, your social media presence, if they want to tap into the support that you're offering or to, you know, collaborate on any level, how do they find you? Well, I, you will be very impressed with my LinkedIn presence, not so much with my Twitter. So I'm going <laughs> to... 
I'll give you my LinkedIn because Twitter, I have like 300 followers and like a thousand people that I'm following. Um, but yeah, either or, I am available on LinkedIn. My handle is Dr. Aditi Paul. Uh, on Twitter, it's I am Aditi Paul. Uh, I would not recommend Facebook. I would also not recommend Instagram, but LinkedIn and Twitter is where it's at. And I am just like you said that you're going to be launching YouTube shorts. I'm going to start a, a YouTube channel, which is also going to be under Dr. Aditi Paul. So please find me there, connect with me, send me a DM. And I'm happy to share the uh, exclusive Slack community that we have uh, support providing support for immigration related news in terms of EB1. So employment based category one, if you're curious how you build your profile to get your green card in an expedited way, happy to share that that community link with you. We've had such a, a thrilling conversation here. It's been uh, absolutely entertaining. And I've learned so much listening to your journey because I didn't have to walk it. I'm still an immigrant that came here legally and went through the system. But my gosh, I knew that as an international student, it must not have been easy. And you're doing awesome work because there's such a need um, for what you're doing. And I have no doubt that this is going to bring you much success. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you well. Thank you again for inviting me to your podcast. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.